You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. We'll be uh, reading <clears throat> the scripture this morning's chapter 11. I'm just going to read a few verses of the key verses, 25 to 32. Uh, Jonathan will be going through the uh, whole chapter, so have your Bibles ready for chapter 11, and it's page 654 for using the Seatback Bibles. Let's read. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. Lord, it's a privilege to meet here in your name. Thank you, Lord, that your salvation is offered freely to everyone. Helps to hear the truths, Lord, in your word today as Jonathan's message, and that we cling to the hope that comes through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a confession to make. I like to bake. It's not something I ever thought that I would enjoy, but in my mid-20s, I got a job working at a bakery, and man, I fell in love. I started off frying donuts, and I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, I, I had these two big fryers that I would stand behind every day, and I'd fry up thousands of donuts. I mean... Who doesn't love the donut man? I'd come home covered in glaze and grease, and it was a cool job. If that wasn't cool enough, after a couple months of working there, I got a, promoted to baking. Now, I was still frying three nights a week, but the other two nights I would come in and I would work for nine hours all through the night, shoveling in bread in the oven and that's when I fell in love. I was a baker. If it was up to me, I would have baked every night of the week, but there was this other guy who was already the head baker, and so I thought there was going to be no opportunity for me to do that. Well, one morning, my boss called me into the office, and he said, I want to promote you again, this time to the head baker. And my eyes lit up. I was so excited. But I asked, well, what happened to the other guy? And my boss kind of skirted the issue and, and avoided the answer. And what else was I going to do other than accept a job? I mean, I was ecstatic. But as I walked away, I couldn't help but think, well, what did happen to that other guy? Why am I here? Now, that's a similar question that 
the Gentile church was asking in Rome. But for them, they were asking, what happened to the Jews? You see, what we understand from the gospel is that it, it started off in Israel, but then it left Israel and it spread out to the Gentile people. And as far as the Roman church could understand, it seemed like no Jews were surrendering to the gospel. So what happened to the other guy? And why are we here? Now, to understand the answers to these questions this morning, we'll be taking a look at Romans chapter 11. So if you will, please open up your Bibles with me as we examine these important questions. Now, I have to warn you, this is a very dense text. We are covering all of Romans 11, and it's going to feel at times like we're clogging through this chapter. But bear with me. We're going to see that Paul is making a very crucial point. We're going to see he's going to ask two questions, answer those questions, and he's going to draw two implications from the text. So, number one, we see here that Paul asks his first question. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, I want you to notice how Paul asks this question. Now, we'll see from the context that he's talking about the Israelites. Has God rejected Israel? But that's not the way he answers, asks the question. He says, has God rejected his people? And the implication to that question are huge. You see, Paul's being very strategic. Because if God rejected his people then, what's to say God's not going to reject his people now? What's to say if God rejected his people in the past, he won't do so in the present? Now, to put your concern at ease, Paul very quickly answers this question. Very emphatically, he says, By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Paul's making himself clear. Is God rejecting his people? Absolutely not. You see, and Paul himself was proof because Paul could trace his lineage back all the way back to Abraham, who was the first Israelite. And so he's showing them that by his ministry continuing, that God is still faithfully preserving Israelite people. But is Paul the only one? Well, Paul's got a second example for us. He says this as he goes on in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says about Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Okay, so here for Paul's second example, he goes all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 19. And if you're a little rusty on this story, basically what happens is Elijah is ministering during a time of great and utter rejection of God. You see, all the people had turned against God and were worshiping this false god named Baal. And Elijah, who was a faithful minister, prophesying the word of God, even when he stood up against these false idols, was chased out into the wilderness. And as he looked at what was happening, he turned to God and he says this in verse 3. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Now, here we see the prophet's cry of anguish. You see, he assumes that everyone in Israel has rejected God. Nobody's faithful. 
And, and that's kind of the way that the Gentile church was feeling. Said, okay, we get it. Paul, you're a faithful minister, but all your brethren, all, all those people who, love, who are supposed to love God, they've rejected him. Now, what, what God tells Elijah shows that that's simply not the case. He says this in verse 4. Now, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in Elijah's situation, he understands that he has things all wrong. Well, it appears that nobody is faithfully following God. It turns out there's actually a large number of faithful believers left. You see, the appearance said one thing, but God was doing another thing. And it was the same situation in the first century for the Roman church. You see, in their time, the emperor had exiled all Jews out of Rome. So, of course, there was no Jewish believers in Rome. They had all been kicked out. So what they were seeing was an unfaithfulness. But Paul's showing that, once again, that's just not true. This is what he says in 5 and 6. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So once again, Paul makes his point. God has not rejected his people. And just like in the days of Elijah, when God preserved a faithful remnant, God was doing the same thing in the first century. He had collected himself a faithful group of people. And I think that's obvious as we read through Scripture. In fact, the entire church was founded by Jewish Christians. And on top of that, if it wasn't for the Jews faithfully taking the gospel out to the nations, none of us would have salvation. You see, the Jews were crucial in God's plan, and, and though the Romans didn't recognize it, they only had the gospel because of them. And, and that's the pattern we see God uh, using throughout Scripture, that God is protecting and preserving faithful people. Now, for us in a country that seems to be turning away from God, it, it may seem like all the believers are leaving. But that's not what God's doing. God is preserving and taking care of his church. He is protecting us. He is holding on to us. God will not go without faithful believers. He's got us. He's got the church, and he will continue to preserve his church, not just in Rome, but here today in our country too. And as Paul goes on to say, even though unfaithful people arose in Israel, the elect still receive what God promised. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what God was seeking? The elect, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So Paul is pointing to something here that we've seen so far in the book of Romans. If you weren't with us for Romans chapter 9, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Jeremy's sermon on that text, where we cover this idea of election, where God chooses people that he's going to save. And this is an idea that sometimes ruffles some feathers, but we see it right here in the text. God chooses people to save. Now, what we have to understand here, though, is that though God chooses people to save, he does not reject people who don't, do not reject him. And that's the pattern we see all throughout Scripture. 
God's responsible for salvation, but we are responsible when we reject God. God does not reject people who have not rejected him. And to drive that point home, Paul goes on to to quote a few Old Testament verses. He says this in 8 to 10, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, here Paul is quoting three different verses and mashing them together. He first quotes Deuteronomy 29.4. And if you're not familiar with this passage, this is going on during the time that Israel is wandering through the wilderness. So God brought them to a promised land, and rather than going in as God asked them to, they refused God's promises. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 29.10. And in this passage, we are right around the time of the exile, when Israel was a nation, and they refused to follow God's commandments. Over and over and over again, they turned to idolatry and rejected God. And what Paul's showing us here is that consistently and consistently, God gave Israel a chance to repent. Over and over and over again, throughout the whole Old Testament, God is faithfully coming to his people and asking them to turn away from their sins. But they refused. And that's the pattern we see. First, Israel rejected God. And then God rejected them. And from Paul's quote here in in Psalms uh, 69.22, now they've become God's enemies. See, what Paul is pointing out is that we are responsible to accept salvation. God doesn't cut us off because we are an ethnic group, but he doesn't also add us because we're an ethnic group. You see, it's all based on this idea of election. It's all based on this idea of responding to the gospel. And while some of Israel accepted God, a large chunk rejected God. And that brings us to Paul's second question. So I asked then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, Paul's question here is a little strange. So let me clarify what he's saying. Basically, he's asking, has Israel fallen away forever? Or in other words, has God stopped giving them an opportunity to respond to the gospel? And once again, we see this emphatic answer, by no means. Once again, Paul's saying that that's simply not the truth. Just because they rejected God in the past doesn't mean they don't have an opportunity to respond to the gospel now. And to clarify that further, he goes on in verse 12. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failures mean riches for the Gentiles, how much more their full inclusion? So what Paul's explaining here is that Israel rejecting God is actually a part of God's plan. Though that may sound strange, 
In fact, what he's pointing out is that when Israel rejected God, it meant that the gospel left the, the, the homeland of Israel and spread out to the nations. So their rejection, their sinfulness, was a catalyst for us receiving grace, for us receiving the gospel. If that never happened then, then it, we're not going to receive the gospel now. But that doesn't mean that the gospel can't come back. That doesn't mean that God's not still working in their lives. That doesn't mean that God doesn't still love them. In fact, what, what Paul is saying is that this idea of the gospel leaving was meant to, to stir up the truth in them. And we see that as the pattern all the way through Scripture. In fact, when Jesus sent out his apostles out to the nations, he told them this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see this pattern. Starts in Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then it spreads to the end of the earth. The gospel is going out because the gospel was never meant for one people group. It's not meant for one ethnicity. It's meant for all of us. And as the gospel goes out, it was meant to stir up the Jewish people and bring them back to salvation, as Paul goes on to say in verses 13 to 15. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, insomuch that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify myself in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, thus save them. For if their rejection means a reconciliation of the world, what then will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the whole branches." Now, as Paul is describing here, is that once this gospel goes out, once this gospel is received by Gentiles, non-Jewish people like you and I, it's meant to stir up a jealousy in their hearts. It's meant for them to look at us and say, well, look at them. They're now God's people. We used to be God's people. We want God back. And we see this pattern as Paul went out and preached the gospel to city and nation. Paul would go and he'd urge his brothers and sisters to, to return to Jesus, to return to God, to return to faithfulness. And when they rejected it, it came to Gentiles like you and like me. But God's not done with them yet. God still has a burning desire for his people. God still has an urge to love them and to reach out to them. And we see that just because the gospel has left now doesn't mean it's coming, not coming back. Because just like God call, cares for the Jews, he cares for you and for me. God loves the nations. And we see that from Abraham who was called not just to be a faithful man and to bear children who would love God, but to be the faithful father of all the nations of the earth. We see that in the prophets who preached that one day all the nations would come to the mountain of the Lord and they would rejoice under his commandments and they would love God. And like Jeremy said last week, God is the Father who is constantly and consistently reaching out his hands in love for you and for me. 
but also for those Jewish people. Now, we've covered a lot of text already this morning. So I want to sum up for us where we have been so we can know where we're going. So Paul has made three points. He said a remnant of Israel still remains. He said Israel has sinned so that the Gentiles can be saved. And then number three, he said the Gentiles will make Israel jealous. And at this point, you might be wondering what I'm wondering. What does this all mean? We've learned what happened to the other guy, but what does that mean for us? Why are we here? I see God's pattern as he's working through history, but what is our place in God's people? Now, as Paul goes on, he's going to make two points. And his first point here is to fervently declare that Gentiles do not deserve salvation. Now, in order to do that, he's going to carry on a metaphor that we saw in verse 16. Let me read that for you again. It says, If the dough offered as first fruit is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, as a baker, I'm a little disappointed to say that Paul is not going to carry on the dough metaphor. What a shame. But what he is going to do is going to carry on this metaphor about the root and the branches. And basically what he's doing is he's pointing back to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the people who founded the nation of Israel. These are the people who first accepted God's promise. And what he's telling them is if these people were faithful, then anyone who's connected to them is also uh, connected to them through that faithfulness is also holy. So what does that mean for us? Paul continues on to say this. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand steadfast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Now, here Paul reveals the reason that he wrote this chapter to begin with. He was dealing with an issue of pride. Basically, for the Gentiles, what they understood is that Israel was rejected so that they could be brought in. And while that's true, in their thinking, they thought that that made them better than Israel. See, God chose us because we're a better people. God chose us over Israel. And what Paul is pointing out is that's simply not the case. Now, I have to admit, I can kind of relate to their pride here. You see, when I got promoted at the bakery, I kind of felt like it's because I was a better baker. But in reality, I would go to find out that that was simply not the case. You see, on my first shift, I went in to find that the other guy, the other baker, was now working at the Friars. And that got me a little excited, in a kind of sick way, thinking that I did get chosen over him. But what happened turns out that he'd gotten in trouble for multiple times taking part in an uh, 
legal activity while at work. We'll leave it at that this morning. But what that shows is that I wasn't promoted because of my merit. I wasn't given my position because I was better. In fact, if the other guy had followed the rules, I never should have been here in the first place. And that's what Paul is pointing out for you and for me. He's drawing up this image of this olive tree to show us that we're not really supposed to be here in the first place. Now, let me explain. Olive trees are very familiar in the ancient world. They're everywhere. And the image of cutting off branches, that that happens all the time. It's called pruning. It's good for the tree. It's normal. What's strange here, though, is this image of grafting in branches. And if you're unfamiliar with this, let me explain. So basically what you do is you cut a branch off of of one tree and you go and you splice it into another tree, as you can see up there in the picture. And what will happen is the branches will grow together and it'll become part of the, the new tree. Now, here's the strange thing. That's not something they ever did with olive trees. In fact, grafting that branch in was not beneficial at all to the health of the olive tree. So not only was it this unnatural process of sticking this branch in, it was contrary to logic. It never should have been put there in the first place. And that's what Paul's pointing out. If Israel had not sinned, we wouldn't have been here. It's not because God looked down on us and said, you are a special chosen people. We are chosen, but we're not some sort of special or better sort of people. And the fact that Israel's been taken out and we've put in shouldn't lead us to pride and arrogance. As Paul says, it should lead us to fear. Because if they were cut off in their unbelief, well, what does that mean for us now? And that's what Paul goes on to say. He says this in 21 to 24. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, I want to clarify something here. There are some people who have taken uh, verses 21 to 24 to mean that you and I can lose salvation. Now, I want to say very firmly that we here at Mill Creek believe that's simply not true. And while these verses may sound like it's cutting off individuals from salvation, what I believe this is saying is it's talking about people groups. He's saying Israel was cut off taken out of the tree, and Gentiles were cut from a wild tree and put into the tree. So he's talking about ethnic groups. He's talking about a people group. He's saying that if Gentile peoples stop responding to the gospel, they too will be cut off. 
Now, if you're not convinced by that, let me point you back to verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. You see, Paul has already told us that God does not reject his people. When someone has responded to the gospel, when someone has uh, received Jesus Christ, when someone is elected into God's people group, God does not reject them. And let me remind you that God does not reject people who have not already rejected him. There's no such thing as losing salvation. But I also want you to understand this, that if God wanted to, he could take away his gift of grace. If God wanted to, he could strip away your salvation. Now, what we understand is that God is gracious and forgiving and loving and relentlessly caring for his people. But when we understand the severity of God, God's wrath on those who have rejected Jesus, God's judgment on those who disobey his commandments, we should never be led to pride. But we should fear the Lord and be in awe of the great and wonderful gift that he has given you and me. Well, God can take our salvation. His kindness, his everlasting love is relentless. God loves you. And as we consider what that means of some of us being saved and, and others not receiving salvation, it leads us to our fourth point this morning. God's salvation is a mystery. Paul continues on in 25 to 27 to say this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. Now, once again, Paul is calling us to humility. But this time he wants us to be humble in our understanding of God's plan of salvation. You see, at times it feels like we have the Bible figured out. We, we track through and we draw our maps and we start to understand what's going on here. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that what God is doing is a mystery. You see, while God has made himself known to us, God is still clothed in mystery. God is larger than our minds and our brains can comprehend. God is bigger so big that he created this universe and us tiny little specks of, of dust. And we cannot understand what God is doing. God's plan is a mystery. Now, ironically, there's a lot of debate over these passages. You see, on, on one side of the argument, people take this verse that says the fullness of Israel will come in to mean that at the end of the age, all of Israel will be brought back into God's people, every single one of them. And then on the other side of the debate, people say, well, that's not quite what that means. It's actually saying that some of Israel will be saved and some of the Gentiles will be saved. And these new people groups will come together to form a new Israel. And in that way, all of Israel will be saved. Now, I've got some opinions on what this verse means. 
But that's actually not the point of this passage this morning. If you want to talk more about these two debates, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But what Paul is telling us is that God loves his people. Well, Israel continues to reject him. Well, Israel continues to refuse him. God loves his people. Well, they've been hardened now in our present age. Well, they're refusing the gospel now in his present age. God is still coming for his people. And oh, what a mystery. That though we are evil, vile creatures, God loves us. And that's not something that just happened the day that Jesus came. This has been always God's plan to love his people. That's why Paul goes on to quote from the book of Isaiah. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now what Paul is doing in quoting this verse is to give us a promise about the deliverer. Now, we know that the deliverer has already come. We know that this deliverer who takes away the sins of his people, who takes away ungodliness, this deliverer has come and his name is Jesus. And this is the Jesus who is the Son of God, who is the divine, who existed before the world was created. This Jesus who spoke things out all by the word of his voice. He formed the galaxies. He put the stars in in its place. He formed the tiniest molecules and formed us from the dust of the earth. This Jesus is the deliverer. And oh, what a mystery that this Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on human flesh. Because he loves his people. This Jesus who not only took on flesh, died on the cross for the sins of his people. And not his people only, but the sins of the whole world. Oh, what a mystery. That even before the dawn of creation, even before you breathe the breath, even before any sin entered your life. Jesus said he'd die for you. That's the mystery of God's plan of salvation. And as Paul goes on to say that not only do we not deserve salvation, but neither do the Jewish people. He says this in 28 to 32. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But regards election, they are beloved for the sake of our forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have been disobedient in order that they too may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. As Paul affirms once again, each and every one of us falls short of the glory of God. 
And as we consider what happened to the other guy, as we considered why you and I have been saved, it may at times be tempting to lead uh, to pridefulness and arrogance, thinking that in some way we were better than another people, or some way thinking that our sins are less than another person's. Understand that we've been all consigned to disobedience. Each and every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And as we consider our friends, our families, our loved ones, and we wonder why they haven't received salvation. Why haven't they understood the gospel? Why haven't they responded to Jesus? We have to understand that though we love them deeply, God loves them more than we could ever fathom. At the end of the day, God's plan is a mystery. Why does God save us when he saves us? How does God take broken marriages and restore them back together? How does God take us broken creatures of dust and raise us up to holiness? How does God save any of us? Oh, what a mystery. The question this morning is not what happened to the other guy. It's why do any of us have salvation? And as Paul ponders these truths, as he writes these things to the church, rather than continuing on with logical arguments or sound deductions, we see in the last few verses that Paul turns to praise. In the light of this mystery, Paul writes down this beautiful doxology, this glorification of God that he is higher and deeper and greater than the sins and the understanding of you and of me. I invite you this morning to take a look down at verses 33 and 36 and read over these truths. In a moment, I'm going to read these verses over you. And we'll end our sermon here today. But these verses weren't meant to just be heard. They were meant to be declared. So I invite you to stand with me this morning. And in a moment, these verses will pop up on the screen. And I invite you to read these with me. Here's what Paul says in 33 to 36. Oh, the deep riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. God, though we deserve your wrath and your severity, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. 
Though we are nothing, you have made us something. Though we were not a people, you have made us a people. God, and to you belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.